Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. This is a story about politics and missed opportunities. But it starts off, strangely enough, with a particular kind of knee surgery called arthroscopic partial meniscectomy. The surgery is for people with serious joint pain, which often comes from osteoarthritis or just from aging. And the surgery works quite well, or at least it seemed to. The New England Journal of Medicine published a landmark study where they found that this very common knee operation worked no better than a sham procedure in which a surgeon merely pretended to operate. That's Eric Potashnik, co-author of the book Unhealthy Politics, The Battle Over Evidence-Based Medicine. And so this was quite eye-opening and remarkable. So my co-authors and I, Alan Gerber of Yale and Connor Dowling of the University of Mississippi, were struck by this. We study political science and we study the way government works. And it had not occurred to us that a very common procedure might not be based on sound science. Potashnik teaches public policy and political science at Brown University. And the question of why a procedure would be done on hundreds of thousands of people a year when it didn't seem to do much and then be approved by, let's say, Medicare, that was an interesting question. But it got more interesting still. That original study explaining that a placebo knee operation worked just as well as a real knee operation was published in 2002. And if you're wondering, for the fake operation, the patients were basically sedated, but they weren't opened up. Well, by 2013, over a decade after the original study, the numbers of these particular knee surgeries were still increasing. There were 700,000 of them being done every year in the U.S., which is when another study revealed exactly the same thing. The actual surgery, in general, was no better than a placebo surgery. And actually, we are seeing a few more such studies in just in recent months on the use of heart stents and some shoulder operations. And we're finding, because a lot of uh, common procedures have not gone through this rigorous scrutiny, it's turning up when we do do these studies, some of the procedures that we thought really worked well uh, don't actually work as advertised. Some experts believe that less than half of all medical care is based or grounded on adequate evidence of its effectiveness. If this is setting off alarm bells in your head, it has for a lot of healthcare experts too. But the politics of making sure that healthcare is based on evidence, they're not easy. So there was an effort in the Affordable Care Act to establish um, government funding for what is called comparative effectiveness research. That's research that looks at how well a given treatment works compared to alternatives for the same condition. Say you have back pain. You know, what's the best way to address that? Would it be surgery? Would it be a drug? Would it be physical therapy? Um, There are many, many questions in medicine just like that. And all too often, the answer is to the question of what works best is we really don't know the answer. In a country with mediocre life expectancy, but the highest health care costs in the world, health care experts on both sides of the aisle had long chewed over the idea of a group that could digest and commission studies and determine how to improve medical care. And a plan was drawn up for such a group. But then a polarized partisan debate over the Affordable Care Act erupted, punctuated by cries of death panels. 
And so even conservatives and Republicans who are concerned about health care quality and who are concerned about uh, efficiency in health care and want to reduce wasteful spending and want the best for patients, there was a strategic incentive to attack that effort as leading to rationing or death panels or all the kinds of um, negative associations. And, and that was one of the casualties of the, of the debate over the Affordable Care Act was this bipartisan technocratic idea got caught up in um, this other debate. In most other countries, there is an organization with real power that helps to make decisions about medical treatments. They vary a lot. On the far extreme is uh, an agency called NICE in the United Kingdom. Uh, then, But agencies in Germany and Canada and Australia uh, don't quite follow the British model, but they move further than the U.S. has, has moved uh, in making sure that payers and clinicians um, take into account studies when making treatment decisions. Patashnik points out that our lack of attention to evidence applies not just to needless surgeries, but to needless tests. 60% of women who have had a hysterectomy, he says, and therefore have no cervix, have gotten a pap test for cervical cancer. And our inability to address these shortcomings in our healthcare system, it boils down to a couple of things, inertia and fear. And what we have seen is that doctors believe strongly in the need for science to guide uh, care. But in many specific cases, when science challenges treatments, when, for example, a study comes out that says a new back surgery doesn't work as well as advertised, rather than embracing the science, we often see medical societies challenge it in an effort to maintain their professional autonomy, the discretion of individual clinicians to make treatment decisions tailored to the needs of their patients. And there are a variety of reasons for this. There can be some good scientific reasons why you might want to uh, listen to the general evidence, but also think about what is most appropriate for the patient standing before the doctor. But there's other reasons, such as um, organizational inertia, financial incentives, psychological reasons why it can be hard to adapt to new information. Whatever the cause is, the result in practice is that we've, we've seen is that physicians have not consistently used their professional authority and prestige to move the American healthcare system to a more evidence-based place. Now, I would not think that it would be be controversial or a partisan issue uh, for a group to say, look, you know, there's this knee operation. Lots of people have it every year to help with arthritis. Uh, but actually, you're just as well off if you don't have it as if you do. The placebo effect is just as good. Um, I would think Republicans might be happy because it would save the healthcare system a lot of money and reduce costs. And Democrats, I don't know, maybe they just be, they maybe they'd be happy for exactly yeah. the same reason. I don't know. Yeah. So two points about that. One is it's really important to look at how these things play out in detail, and it can be a bit arcane. But in the knee case, to its credit, the Medicare agency did not ignore that blockbuster New England Journal of Medicine study. They did put out a rule to actually try to narrow coverage of the procedure. But what we saw was they were under tremendous pressure from uh, orthopedic societies to make their ruling as narrow as possible. And then what we also saw is that they 
there was a growth in very closely related knee procedures that huh. were slightly different, but, um, but similar. Uh, grew from a similar, yeah, yeah, very yeah. similar. Yeah. And then subsequent research also discredited those latter mm. procedures as well. And so I think the point of our analysis is not that evidence has zero impact on policy. That mm-hmm. would be too strong a statement. But the uptake of evidence is extremely sluggish, and it's mediated by a tremendous amount of political pressure. And as a result, there can be a really long lag between when a study finds that something doesn't work very well to how long it takes for policymakers to take into account, and then how long it takes for doctors to change their treatment protocols. Mm. And the more general point is, I think you ask a great point, is like, well, why should this be so difficult politically? After all, you know, Democrats, Republicans, everybody wants to make sure our healthcare system does, you know, as well for patients as possible. There's nobody who really wants to waste money. There's nobody who wants uh, patients to receive inferior care. But what we found is in our research, the American healthcare system really base, is based on a social contract where we sort of delegate authority to the medical profession to govern our healthcare system. That's the core of how our system is set up. And the question then becomes, well, if doctors don't exercise their professional authority in consistently to make sure that treatments are based on sound evidence, can politicians step in and correct that problem? And what we found was, well, our public opinion surveys suggest that if doctors are not providing that leadership, politicians have a really weak incentive to do anything. Hmm. So what we did was... um, if you're the typical member of Congress, for example, and it, let's say, you know, you're trying to build your career, okay. you you want to get reelected, you right. want to solve some problems. Right. What we found is that if you wade into these waters, it's really risky. Mm-hmm. So we did some studies with the public. And what we found is, well, if a politician comes out and says, look, here's the study that suggests that, you know, this back surgery really is not necessary. Mm-hmm. We're spending too much money on it. Mm-hmm. Look at the New England Journal of Medicine. Mm-hmm. They're their experts. Mm-hmm. I really think medicine Medicare could spend their money um, elsewhere in a better way. If you just make that statement by yourself, well, that's fine. The public will say, okay, well, that sounds good. However, if the doctors' groups challenge you, if the doctors say, well, we really don't think that study's quite right, or we think that, you know, we still believe there are patients that would be helped by it, and you're the politician that comes out in favor of curbing the use, what we found in our public opinion surveys is that you're going to take a reputational hit. Not only will the public not be persuaded by what the politician says, the politician's reputation in the eyes of the public will decline. So the upshot is, if you're a politician, essentially, you cannot get on the opposite side of doctors, Mm -hmm. even if the science is on your side. That's just a really risky place to be. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Eric Potashnik. He's a professor of public policy and political science at Brown. He's a co-author of the new book, Unhealthy Politics, The Battle Over Evidence-Based Medicine. You know, we spend, I, I talked about this at the beginning, we spend more per person on, for health care than any other country and quite a bit more than almost every uh, industrialized country. How big a piece of that do you think is not... Uh, doctor salaries or drug prices or things that maybe deserve to you know. yeah. So I think I think we're talking hundreds of billions a year, Sorry, hundreds, well, hundreds of billions of a year in either yeah. unneeded tests, unneeded procedures, not very effective procedures, that sort of thing. Yeah, and, okay. and some small portion of medicine is almost completely useless. Then there's also probably much more common treatments that 
have some benefits, but the benefits do not remotely justify the costs, right? And so we have some low-value care, which is probably more common. So there are some kinds of therapies that should not be used at all. They just don't work very well. Then we have other treatments that do work for some patients, but we use them much too indiscriminately. And so, you know, the cervical screening cancer is a good example. You know, that diagnostic test does make sense for some patients, but it shouldn't be used for people for whom it's not adding any predictive power because it doesn't, you know, it's just not appropriate for right. that patient. And that's probably the more common. The more common situation is therapies, diagnostic tests that are expensive and that produce either no benefits or more frequently low benefits for their cost. Uh, and if we could find ways of el- reducing spending on, you know, cost ineffective care, that would be very helpful. Hmm. One thing that strikes me as we've had this whole conversation is how upside down the system seems. So many politicians obviously want to find solutions. They want to save money. Every doctor I've ever met has been very interested in evidence and taking care of their patients. Um, And no patient wants to undergo needless tests, needless procedures. I just wonder in writing this book, um, what has surprised you the most? So I think what surprised me was the degree to which absolutely dedicated physicians who have, who have devoted their lives to improving patient welfare, and uh, I think that's critical, may not have a full understanding of how organizational incentives and the policy environment and the broader social pressures in which medicine is practiced can result in collective outcomes for Mm -hmm. us as a country as a whole that nobody would want. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, individual physicians are caught up in this larger systemic problem. And I think they themselves don't fully have an appreciation for um, some of the broader forces that impinge upon their own practices. Eric Potashnik is a co-author of the book Unhealthy Politics, The Battle Over Evidence-Based Medicine. He's a professor of public policy and political science at Brown. Eric, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. We talked at the beginning of this conversation about randomized trials designed to test the effectiveness of certain surgeries. Earlier this month, we looked at the power of randomized trials to teach us about everything from vitamin intake to the impact of zip codes on our lives. You can hear that interview at our website, innovationhub.org. Just click on the headline, From Scurvy to Surgery, The History of Randomized Trials.